Please join me now in prayer. Son of God, you humbled yourself and became a servant, raising us up to share in your glory. We were in darkness, and you have given us light and strength, peace and joy. Lead us according to your loving will. Make us a people who follow you in holiness. Give us generous hearts to hear your word and produce in us abundant fruit through the power of your spirit. Amen. A gospel reading taken from Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 33, the word of the Lord. To the Pharisees, religious leaders, Jesus spoke these words. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. You sound just like your mother. The argument, you can imagine, had been going on for quite some time. The fighting and the bickering and the backbiting and the backstabbing and the complaining and the negativity and the fault-finding and the exposing of one another's failings. But he had just pressed the big red button and gone nuclear. He had just told her she sounded like her mother. We all go through conflicts. Conflicts are unavoidable. The only way to avoid conflict is to lock yourself in a box and have everything delivered by Amazon. But even then, you'll be in conflict when FedEx doesn't get its delivery to you in time. Conflict is the cost of, of, of intimacy and relationship. If you have a relationship with no conflict, you're probably doing it wrong. You're probably not being honest. It's just the nature of it. And so we get into arguments and we get into conflicts and we have difficulties ordinarily with one another. These things happen anytime you have two or more sinners trying to relate to one another without doing too much damage. Uh, these conflicts, these differences, arguments, they're part of life. And the gospel gives us resources with which to deal with them and really paints a very different vision for how to argue, how to disagree, how to have conflict, a very different view both in the world and from religion. We're going to look at a letter that St. Paul wrote to his friend Titus, who he had left behind on the Greek island of Crete. Paul had preached the gospel and left you know, Titus there to organize a church. Only all these people coming to this new church on the island of Crete in the first century all had issues. They all had baggage. Some of them were very religious in their backgrounds. Some of them were from pagan backgrounds. They had different assumptions about how to do things. And Paul is saying, as Titus says, Paul 
It's a mess. This church is a train wreck. These people are horrible. What do I do? And Paul goes and tells them something. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what he says. It's Titus chapter 3. I'm going to read the first three verses. This is God's word through St. Paul to Titus. He says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be considerate, and to show true humility toward all people. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, hear that, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law of God because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Strong words from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor and his flock. What do we see here? First, we see here the world's way of doing conflict. At least one of the main ways the world does conflict. What does it look like in verse 3? Paul says, at one time we were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Hating one another and being hated. Looking at other people with envy when they have what it is that we want. Slandering, in verse 2, he says, slandering people. Literally, the Greek says blaspheming one another, speaking out against one another. It's what it can look like. It's the world's way of of controversy and conflict and ugliness and argument and battling it out and holding resentments. And, And how this functions is like this. Paul describes this as being enslaved to the passions. Uh, that slavery to our desires uh, means that there's something more, I think, going on at the heart level um, in all of this malice and all of this envy and all of this hating of people and being hated by people. There's something going on beneath the surface. There's a dynamic spiritually that's happening. You know, if, if we all feel a need because we were created by God originally in a garden where we were absolutely finding God's delight and God's pleasure washing over us continually. We were wired to have, to, to have a sense of approval from outside ourselves, of somebody else clothing us with his eyes and delighting in us. And that's still in our wiring. And yet when humanity fell from its relationship with God, when we were expelled from the garden and we all start outside the garden, uh, you know, we still have that need 
to accomplish, that need to be approved of from outside. It drives us to be successful. It drives us to build families. It drives us to all the areas that God calls us to, but it drives us to ask those things to do something they can't naturally or very easily do, to validate us as people. And if I have to rescue myself, if I have to validate myself, if I have to make myself worthy of blessing, make myself whole, make myself complete, if I have to accomplish, whether it's in my family or my relationships or in my career or in whatever area, whatever it is that I think I have to achieve, attain, or accomplish in order to be a valid human being, that is the thing that if you get in the way, I will hate you. And I will destroy you if it's a choice between you and me. That's human nature. We're fallen, caught off from God. We're damaged. That's just the nature of the beast. And so this performance treadmill actually drives me to resent other people. It's the, that, and it and it's enslaves me. We become its slave in this effort to validate ourselves. It just stirs up so much conflict and leaves us in absolute bondage. Um, you know, 2020, I don't know if you've heard, but it's going to be an election year. Um, so we're just covering this stuff at the beginning, so you don't think I'm trying to bias your vote. Um, but going into an election year, you know, in a socially, culturally, politically divided society like we as Christians find ourselves in, in North America right now, it might be a good idea for all of us to take a big step back and evaluate our use of social media evaluate how we talk about various candidates for certain types of offices, the ones that we love and the ones that we can't stand, um, to make sure that we're actually not on this performance treadmill of having to validate myself, to make sure that I'm not thinking, oh, my political group has to be in power. If we're not in power, that's going to crush us. So, so I'm going to just utterly you know, smash the opponent and speak ill of him. Um, Talk about differences of policy. Talk about issues of character where they may be relevant. But be careful to protect reputations, honor, dignity, respect. You know, what, what, what we see here uh, is that as Christians, we're not called to look at our opponent as the enemy that we have to destroy, but as the enemy that we're called to love, to honor, to respect, not hating and being hated. You know, when we wrap up our identity in our politics, and politics do matter. God has called you as citizens to vote. But when we wrap up our identity in our political agendas, um, it's only going to cause us to hate. It's only going to cause us to do damage. And most of all to ourselves because it leaves us enslaved in anger and bitterness and resentment. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to prove your group. You don't have to prove your policy or your agenda, and you don't have to put anybody down. Paul talks about this dynamic of hating and being hated, and he uses the term, a Greek term, of becoming enslaved. You become a slave to your passions because whatever it is you look to to give you ultimate significance and importance in this life, it becomes the thing you absolutely have to have, and it turns you into its slave and far from giving you freedom, it leaves you in bondage and it causes you to hate. If, for example, changing the topic to physical desirability, if you've always been one of the beautiful people and your thing in life is you have to be desired, you have to be attractive, you have to be, you have to be, 
you have to be that person that everybody wants to be or wants to be with, then what that's going to do, if that's what you build your identity on, then as you get older and older, you're going to go to greater and greater lengths to worship that idol. You're going to put do great damage to your health. You're going to do great damage to your finances, uh, unless you just have it all, uh, in order to keep that up. And it's not going to work because it's never going to be enough. And every time you see somebody who's prettier, more desirable, or more attractive than you, your heart will be filled with bitterness and resentment because that hating and being hated, that worshiping that idol, enslaves you. And it will not forgive you when you fail. If you build your identity on your career, then you're going to take out your opponents. You're going to push them down as you're climbing up the ladder. You're going to be tempted to cheat. You're going to be tempted to fudge. You're going to be tempted to not really have absolute integrity. And ultimately, if you really bow down and worship that, it may cost you your spouse. It may cost you the love and affection of your children. It may cost you your relationship with God. And when you fail, it will not forgive you. It will make you hate and it will leave you in bondage. If it's popularity that you crave and you have to have that and you're willing to do whatever it is to have that, then the cost of that it's going to be hatred. You're going to say, no, I'm popular. I don't hate anybody. All the people you didn't speak up for that you should have spoken up for, but you didn't because you were people-pleasing, they're your victims. And you have hated them in the eyes of the Word of God because you had an obligation to defend them and to love them and to include them. You see, it, there's always an effect. And then when you lose your popularity, you will realize what a slave you are because you're going to feel like a zero. It's the world's way. It leaves us hating and being hated and slaves in the midst of all of it. But there's a second way, a second way that we see here. It's religion's way. Religion's way is a little different, just a little different. Let's see what it looks like. Paul talks about it in verse 9 when he talks about controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, which he says are unprofitable and useless. Um, controversies. Quarrels, speculations, arguments about the Bible, striving, contention, disputing. It's, it's precisely what I have experienced in very religious circles. Um, the sheer ability of church people, particularly online, to fight and argue and criticize and complain and go on the attack. It's just astronomically high. And it was true in Paul's day. He warned this young pastor and his church about these very people. He said, you know, they're people who they show up in church and they don't really get the gospel on a very deep level. And so they start arguing about stuff all the time, arguing, divisive people, particularly arguing and nitpicking about tiny little nuances of what biblical genealogies and, 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 and details of the law of Moses mean, and they're constantly getting into quarrels over this stuff. And, and, and that should tell you something. You know, if you find yourself frequently getting into arguments, particularly arguments about religion, um, and you're just wondering why all these people are, are so argumentative. Understand, from their perspective, you're the one who's the center of it all because you're the one, you're the common denominator. If, if, if you're always fighting about theology, fighting over doctrine, you know, the common denominator in those fights is not theology or doctrine, but you. The problem isn't everybody else, perhaps. Even if they're all wrong, you're not going to deal with it through quarreling and arguing if you get the gospel. 
I remember years ago, my predecessor, George, commenting on a pattern that he had seen for decades in this church, um, and he was here for 33 years. And he said that over those 33 years, uh, he had learned to spot certain people. Whoever it was who was brand new in the church saying, great, praise God, I finally found a church that believes the Bible. He said, that's the next person to split your church because they just split another one and they haven't realized how messed up you all are. <laughs> we all are. Um, you know, it's, it's just, you know, what is it that drives this need to constantly be so divisive? Paul says, warn this person once and twice and then they're out. Um, you know, because they're going to be shaking the dust off their feet if they can't just make life miserable for everybody else. See, religion does this. It makes us divisive. When I look at, at certain conservative religious circles, I find so much backbiting and backstabbing. I see people who are just never happy, uh, constantly criticizing each other online, constantly crying wolf, constantly looking for the next new battle to fight, the next new enemy to attack. You know, you look at discernment blogs, or, or preferably don't look at discernment blogs. You know, they spend most of their time attacking other people, and the rest of the time they spend attacking each other. Um, they just can't live with each other, and it's, it's ugly. It's what one historian called Machen's warrior children, that, that, you know, in the 1920s in Reformed Presbyterian circles, there was a lot of division as conservatives split off from liberals in the Northern Presbyterian Church. And, and what happened historically is those conservative churches that broke off to found one denomination, within a few years, they had split again. Uh, because they couldn't get along with each other. And then a few years later, one of those splits then split again. And that's our history, you know, that, that we, we tend to be divisive. Where does this need come from? What's the origin of this compulsive drive to do theology on the attack? Why do we need ever-increasingly small circles of orthodoxy? What need is driving us to, to root out the enemy within, to find out who's the Judas? Uh, why the need to constantly be contentious, the need to be divisive? What's driving that at the heart level? What's going on inside that compels such ugliness and such godless, Christless behavior? What's going on that stamps out all the love in the name of presumed orthodoxy? And the answer is frighteningly similar to the world's way of doing conflict. In fact, it's almost the exact same thing. How does this function? It flows from the same psychological drive to validate ourselves. Just like the world's way is to validate myself through what I can accomplish in my career or my family or, or my appearance or my, my friendships or my popularity. You know, the same thing is happening with religion as we find ourselves needing to prove ourselves through our right doctrine, our right practice, our orthodoxy, our orthopraxy, our being numbered with the right people. And what that does is it makes me minimize my own sin because I have to be one of the good people to be valid. And it makes me maximize everyone else's failings. It makes me hypersensitive to, to root out error because if I'm doing the religion thing then, and I'm a part of a church, then I have to be of a church that's right. And that's going to make me a, a lightning rod in that church for controversy and argument and division. It's the same thing. You know, if I think what makes a person valid is that they have perfect theology. And I really value theology. I want you to understand, I did get a PhD in historical theology. I have statues of Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, and uh, uh, John Calvin on my windowsill in my, in my office upstairs. I'm that kind of guy. But 
if what I think makes me valid is that I'm right theologically, that's a very subtle and very dangerous place to be because then I'm going to look down upon other people for having bad theology. I'm going to talk bad about them. I'm going to trash them. I'm going to talk about them poorly online and in person. I'm going to think that my theological tradition is superior to theirs even though they may be way more warm-hearted and more loving and better prayer warriors and more faithful in sharing the gospel with their friends, neighbors, and coworkers than me or my tradition. But theology is what I think makes me right, and that means I'm going to look down on others. It's a way of doing theology that is not humbly studying theology in order to know Jesus but rather proudfully studying it in order to puff myself up as a part of a self-salvation treadmill of validating myself. And the scary thing is that I'm going to think that I'm doing it for God when I'm not doing it for God at all. Because if I was doing it for God, then I would be loving my neighbor. I'm doing it for myself, to validate myself. Uh, it's no different from the world's way. You can spend your life in church. You can read theology night and day. You can go to seminary. You can work in a church and still miss the gospel and the way you'll know you're missing the gospel is because you're going to be arguing and angry you're going to be enslaved to that anger you're not going to even realize necessarily what an angry person you are but those around you are going to feel controlled and they're going to pull away it's like the world your religion also will not forgive you when you fail i have watched self-righteous pharisaical church people the, the the judgmental ones who are always pointing out other people's failures, I have watched some of them go down in flames. Friends, it's sad. It's hard to watch. They're so confident in their righteousness, their goodness, their superiority. They think that they're, they're always talking about how everyone else is an idiot. They spend their lives reading books, helping them learn to criticize others more effectively. Uh, they gossip about other folks. They protest that they're one of the good people. They, they, they cannot confess their sins. They cannot ask forgiveness. They, they're not able to apologize. They're too proud. They can't be one of the wrong people. It's too troubling and traumatic until they get caught. It might be they get caught cheating on their taxes. It might be that they get caught with somebody who's not their spouse. But they get caught and they go down in flames. Remember all those televangelists of the 1980s whose ministries blew up and now their religion will never forgive them because they're not one of the good people after all. And until, you know, some folks, they have to lose everything before they can really see Jesus. Um, and, and until they do, uh, they can bring so much division, so much strife, so much arguing. You know, this passage, it's been misused historically to silence whistleblowers and others pointing out abuses. And that's not at all what Paul is talking about. Um, he's, he's targeting self-righteous religious teachers. And he's saying, warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with him. He is self-condemned. It sounds harsh, but Jesus said much the same thing when he talked about religious leaders to religious leaders in the passage we read from the gospel. Uh, I tell you that everyone will have to give account at the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. He's talking to pastors here. He says, for by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. It's, it's hard because our words flow out of our heart and our hearts are constantly trying to rescue ourselves and make ourselves significant and valid, meaningful and worthy and lovely and desirable and all of that. And that drives us into quarrels and arguments. And it's true with the world and it's true with religion. But here's the good news. There's a third way. 
different from the world and different from religion. What's it look like? It looks like living the truth of the gospel. It looks like deferring to the interests of others. Verse 8, he says, this is a trustworthy saying and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Doing what is good. Not doing what's good to make a name for myself. Not doing what's good for me to be one of the cool people. Not doing what's good for my reputation. Not doing what's good for me to be successful in my career or what's good for me to be one of the people who are superior to others. Not what's good for me to have the theology that makes me better than the next guy at the next church down the street. No, doing what is good, period. Verse 1, be subject to authorities, obedient, ready to do whatever is good. And this means putting ourselves second or third or tenth or hundredth in the equation. It means taking myself out of the equation and saying, what is in the best interest of this other person? What do they need to experience the love of God? What do they need to be loved from me? Verse 2, he says, be peaceable and considerate, showing true humility toward all people. Humility. That means that the way up is, is down. That means putting myself beneath other people. That means putting myself not above them, like when I follow the way of the world and the way of religion, trying to make myself superior to validate myself, but I don't need to validate myself. I have Jesus validating me, and I can be one of the bad people. I can be one of the lowly people. I get to be one of the people who doesn't get it. I can be one of the unpopular people if that's what God calls me to because that stuff doesn't ultimately matter. What matters most to me is not that I can prove myself. What matters is that I'm faithful to God and obedient to him and that means loving other people, doing what is good in humility as a servant, loving God, loving neighbor the path of the gospel, of deference to the good of others. Now, how does that actually function? Because that can just come down as another law. Uh, and so I'm going to do that to prove myself to be one of the good people. No, no don't, don't. That, that's, that's the religion way. How does this function? The only way this model can work is if God himself has done something that is truly tremendous to liberate us from our need to be one of the good people, from our need to be superior the need to be excellent, that voice inside your head that's saying you should look better than you look, you should act better, you should be more successful, you should look at you. You know, to liberate us from that voice. And that's precisely what Paul points to here. He goes back, it's fascinating. You know, Titus is saying, I got this train wreck church of people who complain all the time. And he says, tell them the story. And he tells them the story. He goes back and to this defining narrative that situates the follower of Jesus, that situates us as the church and defines our place in the world. In verse 4 to 7, how does he deal with the complaining and the criticism? He preaches them the gospel. He says this, he says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs with the hope 
of eternal life. Do you hear that? What can turn off the criticism? What can teach us to do conflict in a way that defers to the needs of others and loves them well? But the gospel, the Bible says he already saved us. Past tense, accomplished fact. That means if you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus and trusting him as your savior, he's already clicked the save button for you. It says he saved us. That's not, he's not going to delete your file. He's not going to let your file get corrupted. He's not going to lose track of your file. He's not uploading you onto some zip disk or Betamax or 8-track technology that's not going to be readable in a couple years. You know, he saved you, past tense. He clicked the button. The file's secure. You're not going anywhere. He's not going to lose you. He's not going to, no matter what happens, because he saved you. And then look what he says about justification. Justification is the declaration of righteousness as in a court of a law when you stand before God in the ultimate tribunal and he declares you justified. He uses the perfect tense, having been justified. How is that significant? It's incredibly significant because of this. The perfect tense is a present tense based upon a past reality. You are now in a present state of having already been justified. You are currently in the present, in a state in which you have already been declared righteous and worthy before God. That means the resume of Jesus credited to you, a resume you're never going to embellish. You're already perfect in the eyes of the Father, even though he still knows how we're not. means judgment day has moved from the future to the past and you've already been declared good enough for God and good enough for eternity on account of what Christ did for you. It's different than just forgiveness. It's being declared righteous. Forgiveness says you may go. Righteousness says you may come. Uh, I've used the illustration about a zillion times, at least once a year. Of, you know, you go into Commerce Bank and and you've just defaulted on all of these loans, and you've defaulted on your car and your house, and you've got credit card debt up to your eyeballs, 15 credit cards, they're all maxed out. They're all, your, your bank account is overdrawn, and on top of that, you've got all of these fees, and you sit down with the clerk at the desk at the little cubicle in the lobby, and he says, well, uh, Mr. Johnson, um, Pastor Johnson, uh, you've really made a mess of this, but we're just going to take care of this, and we're just going to clear out all of your debts and, uh, you know, just erase them all, and we'll just erase all these fees, and you can go home, we'll take care of it. And so you're walking out the door. Now, is that forgiveness? That's forgiveness. But as you're walking out the door, there are two things that are still true of you at that point. At that point, yes, you're forgiven, but two things. One, you are bankrupt. And two, Commerce Bank doesn't want to ever see your face again. And some of you think that that's the Christian life. You're stuck. You're stuck because you know you're forgiven, but it hasn't really hit your heart level yet that you're righteous before God. Righteousness is when the CEO of Commerce Bank comes running out through the door and saying, Mr. Johnson, Pastor Johnson, please come back in. I'm so, so sorry. We made a terrible mistake. And you're like, oh boy. And you go in and she ushers you up through the elevator up to her 15th floor mahogany corner office. She sets you down at her desk, behind the desk, with glass on two sides and neat little trinkets all over her desk. And she brings in a lawyer with a big stack of, of, of papers. And she says, we may need your signature, but, but we're sorry. That guy downstairs, he's new here. He doesn't really know what he's doing. That should not have happened. 
Um, we're just going to go ahead and sign over the bank and all its assets to you now. And we've got somebody down the hall with uh, some oil paints and a canvas. We need to catch, capture your likeness for the lobby. Um, that's righteousness. Uh, and that's what you have in Christ. We're talking ticker tape parade. We're talking Congressional Medal of Honor. We're talking access to the very halls of power. Paul says that you have already been justified by Christ. You've already been declared righteous. And that enables us to do conflict differently. If we get the gospel, it makes us the least offended people on the planet. Um, you know, we can stand with those who have been wronged. We can develop convictions on things where godly people may differ. Uh, but when you believe that you're so bad that Jesus had to die for you and so loved that he's clothed you in his righteousness, uh, it removes any moral high ground from which to criticize or judge anybody else. Uh, believing you're so deeply loved and yet so deeply flawed can inject the note of humility. Think of how Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, Christians are taking each other to, to courts of law, suing each other, and he says the fact that you have lawsuits among you meant means you've already been completely defeated already. And then he asks, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Only the gospel can give you that freedom to say, why not rather be cheated? You know, it, 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 it enables us to look out for the needs of others because I don't have to get results. I don't have to accomplish. If I have to accomplish and get resu results, I'm going to run over somebody. But if I don't have to accomplish anything, if I don't have to be successful, if I don't have to get it right, I can just focus on trying to love the other person, even when they're difficult, even when their views absolutely drive me nuts, even when they scandalize me. I can just focus on loving them because the gospel frees me from the need to judge and enables me instead to love. So how is it possible? Friends, it's possible because King Jesus did something absolutely amazing he stepped down from his throne in heaven, what we celebrate during this Christmas tide, this 12th day of Christmas today. We celebrate King Jesus who became a slave on earth in order to love us well, who had mercy on you and felt compassion for you and could not bear the thought of life without you and went all the way to earth and then all the way to the cross in order to rescue you, in order to have you. You'll do anything, friends, when you're in love. And he saved you so that you can in turn defer to the needs of others. Edward VIII, as king, had a life. He was the king of England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. He was the king of South Africa, king of Australia, king of Canada, and emperor of all India. He had incredible wealth, he had fame, he had palaces, he had castles, he had servants, he had honor. He had relationships with the richest, most famous people on the earth. He had the admiration of a nation and of an empire and of much of the world. He was like James Bond. Women wanted to be with him and men wanted to be him. It was good to be the king and Edward VIII had it all until he met a woman. We've got a photo this is him with Wallace Simpson. Wallace had everything against her so far as any potential relationship with the king was concerned. Wallace was a commoner and therefore out of Edward's league. British society would never condone a king married to a lowly commoner. 
only a princess or a queen or a duchess or a countess would do, a lady of rank and title, a woman with standing. Wallace Simpson was none of that. Worse yet, Wallace was an American from Philadelphia, across the pond, former colonies, a yank. The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland was not going to have a yank queen consort an empress of all India. This was never going to happen. But the Berlin Wall between Wallace and Edward VIII was that Wallace was what? She was divorced. She had been previously married twice. And she was still married to the second one when she started cavorting with that man. As king, Edward VIII was supreme governor of the Church of England. And as such, according to what then was church law, to marry a divorcee was to commit adultery and to be disqualified as king. In fact, Wallace was still married when she started seeing him, so she was a cheater on top of that. Morally unsuitable. She was a 40-year-old double divorcee with two surviving husbands and a woman of loose moral standing, an American and a commoner. The shame of it. Marriage would be absolutely impossible and not even the king could change that. It was a public scandal. Edward VIII was a good-looking guy. Ladies swooned over him. But about Wallace Simpson, the socialized quipped, besides, she's not even pretty. Exiled to the south of France under great pressure, Wallace Simpson renounced her relationship with the king. She broke it off. It was over. The king would have to find someone else, and the crisis was happily averted. Until December 10th, 1936, when King Edward VIII shocked the world by announcing his abdication from the throne. He stepped down as king. He left behind palaces and castles. He abandoned the love and admiration of the empire. He lost his honor of his position. He lost his status. He abandoned it all, he said, so that he could marry the adulterer Wallace. He said he was unwilling to be king, quote, without the help and support of the woman I love. He ceased to be king. He became instead the Duke of Windsor and Wallace Simpson, divorcee, adulterous, commoner, American, and not even pretty, became Duchess of Windsor and a new member of the British aristocracy. Friends, you do crazy things when you're in love. And the good news is that Jesus is the true king who fell madly in love with you and did something crazy that we consider this season of Christmas tide. He abandoned his throne, his palaces, his authority, and he came down to earth in order to be married to you because he was not willing to go through eternity without being side by side with the woman he loves, which is the church, which is you. I mean, you think about it. We were out of his league. He was out of ours. We lacked the qualifications, the status, the nobility, the standing. You were the divorcee, the adulterer, unfaithful and publicly shamed. It was totally inappropriate for Jesus to claim you, and besides, you weren't even pretty. And yet Jesus saw you as beautiful, and the king fell madly in love with you, and he became nothing so that you might take your place among the aristocracy of heaven.
That's the good news, folks. That's what can free you to love and to defer to the needs of others. Let's pray. Sovereign Jesus, we give you thanks for your love. It is great, it is overwhelming, and it is humbling, Lord. And yet we thank you that Christ has come into the world, the Lord himself, to liberate us and to claim us as his own. And so we consecrate to you now the elements on this table, Lord, that by this sacrament you might bind us together in love and in the grace of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.